Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recorded live. Well, hello, folks. This is Michael Adams. And it's nothing about the truth. One man's journey to find it. And once again, we have uh, Gordon Comstock on. And uh, we just... Uh, exchanged some emails, said, hey, you want to do a show? And I said, of course I do. And uh, we're going to do a show on um, Emmanuel Josephson, it looks like, and in particular his book concerning Rockefeller, the internationalist. Um, Let's see... uh, the quote here from Senator Vandenberg, a bipartisan San Francisco UN conference, and, uh, May 10th, 1945. Anything Rockefeller wants is okay. Give you an idea of what <clears throat> we, as a, a nation, quote unquote, as a nation and as a people, have been dealing with um, throughout our lives and for numerous generations now. It uh let's see here. Find out a little bit here. That was in nineteen forty five with that quote, forty five. Yeah, if you that... go back about fifty go back about fifty years earlier, you get completely different kind of quotes about the Rockefellers from congressmen, from senators. <laughs> I imagine they weren't so uh compliant back then. I guess we're going to tell about this book. We're going to be talking about the book called uh, The Man Who Misrules the World. Mr. Internationalist, the Rockefeller, or the Rockefeller in particular, and um, you might want to put there, along with internationalist slash Luciferian. So, anyways, um, yeah, bro, how are you doing, first of all? Let everyone know how you're doing, if you don't mind. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> doing, doing okay. Um, yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> It'd be. Uh, well, I wish I had been born in a different time and a different place, but I'm doing okay. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I think we're both going through the very similar circumstances. A lot of challenges in our lives, and uh, it's not going to get the road's not going to get any easier. Thank you to you men like the Rockefellers. Um, yeah, um, where do we go with this, man? I mean, it's uh, I, I read a little bit of the, the book. It's a pretty heavy book. It looks like a good book to actually read. There's so many good books out there to oh, read, yeah. you know what I mean? But um, this one covers all sorts of... Uh, is this the connections between the bankers, banksters and communism and the exploitation of the resources in the United States and of the people and uh, the loss of quote-unquote privileges and rights. And um, where do we go with this? Where were you thinking about going with this? Uh, this is your expertise. So, 
hand it over to you. Unless you want me to do the traditional introduction and do some um, reading from the Yahoo.com, but I don't know. I'm tired of Yahoo myself. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, I found it interesting, though, uh, the, connect, the, connections, the connections that uh, Josephson uh, figured out with the Jesuits. That was very interesting, a couple of his quotes that he has. Yeah, you only get that at the ta- the tail end of his life. His writing he is, uh, in my opinion, easily one of the top five real historians, maybe in the top three, I think, real truthful historians that this civilization has ever produced. His writing spanned from the late 30s, I believe, until the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And he was, as I think I mentioned in the email, he was a gadfly of the Rockefellers all throughout his life and all of his writings. He was a doctor. He was an MD. But uh, the uh, the brainwashing of the AMA didn't take with him, and he also wrote books exposing the fraud and corruption of mainstream medicine and the AMA. And... Uh, He's written, he wrote many books about the Rockefellers uh, in addition to exposing other government corruption and historical American corruption. Uh, a year or two ago, I did a show uh, on another book he wrote about the Rockefellers, uh, Josephson. That one was called uh, Rockefeller Studies in Criminal Psychopathy. That one came out in the early 60s. Um, this one came out in 52. Now, that other one was dedicated mainly to Nelson Rockefeller. This one's dedicated maybe a little more to uh, J.D. Rockefeller. But with all his books, he he flows, he goes all around, and he hits a lot of general topics about the Rockefellers and about other corruptive influences they had and wherever their branches of corruption went. Um. Uh, yeah, I, and I mentioned in the email, it, his early writing, maybe even say the first two-thirds of his writings, his books, you find him blaming the uh, the socialism, the communism in this country, which he rightfully identified, even early on, he rightfully identified that there's very little, if any, difference between New Dealism and fascism and communism. He, he said it's the same thing. It's the ploy of the banksters uh, to implement, uh, install socialism uh, on a global basis. He was way ahead of the game there. But, like, ironically, like a Romanist, uh, certain Romanist writers today, like Charlotte Isabel and some others, he early on blamed, uh, he saw the sources of socialism, he traced them back to Prussia and Bismarck. And he does so in this book. However, as I pointed out, if you keep reading his books up until his uh, the 60 book, the other book about Rockefeller, which I mentioned, and then more especially his 1968 book, which might have been his last one, that, and maybe his best one. Uh, in 68, he came out with uh, Rockefeller uh, and the, what was it, the, the uh, the Federal Reserve Conspiracy and Rockefeller, their gold corner, something like that. And several times in that book, he links the Rockefellers 
he, it's like he figured it out. He, he no longer is pointing to Prussia, but he's linking up the Rockefellers with the Jesuits in 68. Now, think, he, he's doing that from a totally different perspective. Uh, a Jewish doctor, I, it doesn't sound very religious, but Jewish in uh, nationality or heritage, not religion. Uh, and, but he was coming at it from, a, and he, he figured out it was the Jesuits from a different angle than you and I would. Now that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and he did it. Without, he did it without the internet too. <laughs> it took a little longer. You, but you, you got people today that can't figure it out with the internet ever. So uh, this guy was just brilliant. And if you're like me, man, you, you go through a book like this, and first of all, all of his books are out of print. Uh, you can get them used. You can get them. A few of them you can get on uh, uh, online and uh, on archive. You can also get them, uh, how I like to get them, used, beat-up old uh, copies like I, I get, um, say like 20 or 30 bucks, but you can get them. But, boy, they're out of print. <laughs> he is buried in history, and he's one of the finest historians I've ever read, the finest American historians. This guy's amazing. Uh, to show you, you gave that quote from 40, quotation from 45. Uh-huh. By 45, the Rockefellers had, had totally captured the nation. They hadn't quite captured the nation, though, in the early 1900s. And here's a quotation from another senator, only this is 1917. This is Senate, uh, Senator Chamberlain from Oregon. He, he said, quote, the Carnegie Rockefeller influence is bad. In two generations, they can change the minds of the people to make them conform to the cult of Rockefeller or the cult of Carnegie rather than the fundamental principles of American democracy, unquote. That was prophetic. And in this book, there each, each chapter, another Joseph intends to do this too. I don't think this is the only book he's done that in. Each chapter is dedicated to a different facet of the nation, a different institution of the nation, which Rockefeller gobbled up, monopolized. There's a chapter how he, uh, he and his henchmen gobbled up uh, uh, public education. There's a, my, the most interesting chapter I found was how the, the Rockefellers gobbled up uh, mainstream medicine. And, of course, there's, there's a chapter how they gobbled up banking. There's a chapter how they gobbled up the oil, how they gobbled up the munitions industry, all of it. This, of all of the books dealing with the Rockefellers, uh, just the Rockefellers alone, this would probably be the one to read of Josephson. Uh, some of the others, that, let's see, the other one from 64, the uh, Rockefeller Studies in Criminal Psychopathy. That one is dedicated more so to Nelson Rockefeller, specifically. And then, of course, that one in 68 is more so dedicated to the Federal Reserve and Rockefeller and also the Jesuits. Um, but this one, boy, this one is all-encompassing of how the Rockefellers captured the nation, the civilization, monopolized all of it. How do they go about doing that? How do you think they a a particular plan, a particular family, was able to do what they did? I know, I well, know, boy, I know. I'm just jumping right to the. the <laughs> this, 
you know that's my approach. It's like to just go cut to the chase. Oh, how do how did they how did they, that family like the Rockefeller you know this clan and I guess it wasn't just them. There was like the Duponts and a few others that uh, worked together to monopolize the economic and political uh, institutions of uh, the Western Hemisphere. In particular, the United States. It looks like maybe even Canada, right? Oh, first of all, real quick, there's also a chapter. I don't want to leave this off or forget about it. There's a chapter of how the Rockefellers captured and monopolized uh, incorporated religion, of course. Oh, yeah. Evangelicalism. Yeah. Uh, But as to how the Rockefellers did it, what's so special about them? Uh, Well, first, two things come to mind. Number one, if you read the work of one of the other of the top three or four American historians of all time, Gustavus Myers, you realize right from the start that this nation from revolutionary times in, in the early, very early 1800s, right from the start, it was, uh, it began to be monopolized by a few scurrilous, unscrupulous, uh, people who, whose main gift in life was acquisitiveness. Uh, just, they, they, they liked things. <laughs> they liked things a little too much. They, they had the love of money, as you could say, that Jesus warned of. Uh, the Goulds and the Vanderbilts and the, um, oh gosh, there's, there's the Marshall Field. And, uh, you read the, uh, Gustavus Meyer's book, The History of the Great American Fortunes for that. So, but, so it's not exactly unprecedented that we have oligarchs running the country today. We had that all throughout the 1800s as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're supposed to have representatives, but the representatives are all bought off by these oligarchs, these monopolists, these tycoons. But uh, they're, they're on, the, on the other hand, though, there does appear to be something something that sets Rockefeller apart even from the other monopolists, the Rockefeller clan. Of course, in my my mind, I can only speculate that there's uh, spiritual influences, dark spiritual influences behind that, the same way you find... uh, you could ask the question, what makes the Society of Jesus stand apart from the Dominicans and the Franciscans and all the other orders? Why are they so much more cunning than even the other cunning Romanist orders? I, I, I maybe the, the devil the devil picks one horse to ride more than the others, maybe. Yeah, it may be. You know, it makes me think of, because uh, I'm reading that book, uh, uh, Popery as it was and as it is, hopefully it'll be finished in the next couple of days with that. It's been taking a long endeavor for me to do. But uh, we look at uh, Queen Catherine and her son, Charles, and um, how they deliberately, like Queen Catherine, how she deliberately trained her son to become deceitful, a murderer, um, to lie, the art of lying, the art of just, you know, um, giving empty promises and stuff like that. Now, if there's, if you, 
now, if you look at it as a culture, a European culture, especially the the ruling elite and the black nobility, if you will, um, and how they applied this whole attitude of uh, basically deception from the very get-go uh, being then passed on from generation to generation. Along then with your what you're talking about with Luciferianism, Satanism, and this, um, well, practicing the dark arts, it means, seems to be yeah. the combination of those two uh, uh, have allowed certain people, um, the gifted people, clearly the Rockefellers are not a bunch of chumps, and they're not a bunch of, you know, just, you know, mediocre human beings as far as intellect goes. You do not get to the rise to the top as they have without being exceptionally brilliant. Um, oh, and it makes you wonder, because, you know, you look at, like, the Jesuits themselves in the priest class, and many of them are brilliant, have extremely high IQs. And yet, one has to ask himself the question, who is the, well, who's in charge? Is it, is it these, the Rockefellers, these type of folks, or is it the Jesuits? Who actually is running the show? Who's running who? Or is it just like this <clears throat> mismatch of uh, uh, this cesspool that just keeps twirling around and it just depends on whose moment and whose time it is? I don't know. One thing I do know is uh, the Rockefellers are, dominate the UN, dominate a lot of the, the international agenda that's out there, especially when it comes to the economics and that. So, how did they get to that point? I don't know. And how did how did they, how did how were they allowed to get to that point? It seems like a whole nation of people, politicians and businessmen just succumbed to them. It just didn't, nobody really, I mean, earlier in the, like uh, like you said earlier, there were the voices, you know, complaining, warning, yet no one listened. So, bizarre. The yeah. progenitor, the, the progenitor of the clan that you can trace it back to the uh, William, from the 1800s, William Dock, "Quote unquote," Doc William A- Williams Avery Rockefeller. He did exactly what you uh, said. Uh, what was it? Catherine trained yeah. her child to be a villain. All right. Well, listen to this quotation from Doc William Avery Rockefeller from the 1800s. He said, uh, "I cheat my boys every time I get the chance. I want to make them sharp. I trade with the boys and skin them." And I just beat him every time I can. I want to make him sharp. So he trained him to be acquisitive and cunning and deceitful. Principal uh, principles, by the way. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Doc Rockefeller, in the 1800s, he was a snake oil salesman. He sold patent medicines, the same as your vaccinating baby jabbers and your MDs today and your big pharmas. He was a, a and he was a quack, just the same as your first two founders of the AMA, Morris Fishbein and uh, Doc, quote unquote Doc Simmons. They were frauds and quacks. Uh, and he also, Doc Rockefeller, was a rapist. He had to flee. Uh, I think that's how he wound up in Cleveland. 
He had, he raped some woman in some other town. Either that or he had a flea cleaver. I forget. <laughs> but uh, early on, he was uh, he was using uh, petroleum oil in medicine, and boy, they sure come back to that. We got these petrochemical pharmaceutical drugs today. Yeah, you know, and it, uh, I started to laugh because I'm a guy from Ohio, and I, just, I find it amazing how much. Uh, filth comes out of my state. <laughs> the Rockefellers being one of them. So, um, well, that's also why in the late 1800s, most of all your presidents came from Ohio. Was that was the epicenter of the oil industry and Rockefeller? You know, I want to read a little bit out of this book from that we're talking about here from uh, the man who misruled the world. I'm just going to read this something out. I think it's out of the very first chapter. Uh, kind of the international strategy that they had. Um, and, I, I, and I believe it's... You can talk about international, but you also can look at it um, uh, in our own... Uh, uh, Reality, you know, our own personal uh, interactions with people. This is the warning it says here for the book. Soviet Russia was controlled by a mis, uh, excuse me, by a ruthless gang of criminals, moral and ethical leopards, who pose as philanthropists and champions of the masses. They are bent on conquering, looting, raping the world and will not stop until either they have accomplished it or themselves have been destroyed. You know, to get an idea of the thinking process of this, these folks. Uh, any dealing with them as a government merely gives them the advantage of the delays and aids implied in international amenities that they scorn but use to full advantage. <clears throat> Interesting. They never, there never has been a more effective way of checking the spread of contagion than isolation. Interesting, isolation. A policy of strict isolationism would weaken the Soviets by withholding from them the material they require for their mad criminal plans. And their accomplices in our midst have undertaken to discredit isolationism and to make it a term of opprobrium and reproach. To further their conspiracy, they foster internationalism, which Stalin has dictated shall mean that, quote, the internationalist is one who is prepared unreservedly, unreservedly, unhesitatingly, and unconditionally, unconditionally to defend the USSR. News leader, March 11, 1950. All of the conspirators' internationalist schemes the Marshall Plan, the NATO, the MSA, the Four Point Program, etc., are designed to supply the communists with the equipment and material without which they cannot wage war with 
war on us. The material is sent to our treacherous allies in the East and the West and is uh, transshipped by them to their criminal scum, communist partners, indirectly when not sent directly to increase their loot the red racketeers are now resorting to blackmail and the ransom of our prisoners the quote snatch racket and the and quote they must act immediately to oust and bar from the public office any person identified with the vicious conspirators it goes on and on and on so Anyways, uh, I certainly could read more of it, but I found that to be a very profound couple of cha- uh, paragraphs, and in particular describing who the internationalists are and their connections with all these. We, we have been told in school and on the mass media of wonderful plans, wonderful uh, agendas that came from this country, like the Marshall Plan, NATO, MSA and the four point program and somehow that actually the absolute reverse of its intentions were what we were actually taught. So as they were telling us that we were there to, to help the average the masses and uh Europe in reality were just supplying the genocide machine of Stalin and his predecessors and um uh, and uh, et cetera. So I find it also fascinating too that I I played this video of the audio of the video. This uh, it's called Soviet something. Uh, I gotta look it up again. I can't remember now. <laughs> I gotta um, Soviet the Soviet story and it's fascinating how there are the connections with uh, uh, Nazi Germany and how they were actually supplying Nazi Germany with the food and wheat while starving the folks in Ukraine. This is the whole mentality of these people. This is how wicked. I guess it's, it's beyond me. We, whatever, we always end up, Gordon, talking to me about how wicked these people are in their thinking process of, and how it has to be something spiritual because how do you justify starving a whole nation of people and then sending their food back to Nazi Germany What's the thinking process behind that? It has to go back to the Jesuits once again. It has to go back to this whole agenda that's been around for thousands of years of Roman domination of the whole world. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you want to talk atrocities. Uh... <laughs> Not only, yeah, not only, yeah, he, he, uh, Josephson writes early and often proving, uh, that programs like the Marshall Plan were to fleece the American public and build up our enemy, uh, the, the enemies of the U.S. Also, he proves again and again in this book that, uh, the two world wars and Korea and, um, and Vietnam. But let's just focus on the two world wars for a second. The two world wars were the direct result of backroom oil deals that the Rockefellers were uh, engaged in with the with Soviet Russia. And there was a, the other player also in that uh, was British Petroleum, 
uh, I'm sorry, was uh, Royal Dutch Shell, the other British oil company. There was uh, some oil monopoly warfare going on, both uh, between uh, the Rockefeller Standard Oil and Royal Dutch Shell of Britain. And one kept outdoing the other and then vice versa and vice versa. They were fighting over uh, oil in the Soviet Union. Then they were fighting over oil in Saudi Arabia. It's the Saudi Arabian oil in particular that led to World War One, and that also had a, a lot to do with World War Two, as well as some big oil fields in Soviet Russia. So the real reason after the, the communists came to power, one of the real reasons, uh, that the United States was uh, so gung-ho to, to trade with the Soviets goes back to uh, the Rockefeller domination of the U.S. and the Rockefeller desire to capture the oil in, uh, in Soviet Russia. And which they, they did not capture it, but what the, apparently the Rockefellers were able to do is uh, come to a treaty with the, the Soviets that kept British petroleum away from having anything to do with the Russian oil fields. And also... Uh, when the Rockefellers eventually captured the uh, the Saudi Arabian oil fields, they cut a deal with the Soviets that the Soviets would not go down there and attack it. That was part of the reason we were trading, the U.S. was trading with the Soviets, was to keep the Soviets from attacking the uh, Saudi Arabian oil fields of the Rockefellers. But there's some just some really specific charges and proof to that Josephson gives over and over regarding that. And you even, there's, there's some of these esoteric things in American history that uh, we get in our history class briefly. We get this truncated version of events, and then we scratch our heads and go, well, okay, I'm not sure what happened, but something happened. One of those events was the, uh, during the Warren Harding presidency, the Teapot Dome scandal. I don't know. That was all about. Yeah, exactly. We're we're not giving very much about that at all. It was a scandal during the Warren Harding. And what what it was about? It was a it was a, a ruse. What it did was it um, it blackened the political career of Harding, and then according to um, Josephson, they ended up poisoning Harding shortly after that, which is probably true. And as a doctor, he, he also knows about the symptoms of the poisoning, and he tells you how suspicious it was. Um, but there was a, a rival, an American rival in the oil industry uh, at, at the time named um, Sinclair, Sinclair Oil. I think the guy's last name was Sinclair, too, but I'm not sure about that. But the company was Sinclair. I think it was, it was also his surname. Uh, Sinclair actually in the 20s was posed as real threat to the Rockefeller oil empire and it's kind of convoluted I would have to track it down how they did it but they they lured Sinclair into this uh, honey honey of a deal that was crooked and Sinclair thought they were taken taken from it too but they weren't and and at a certain point, the Rockefellers, who, by the way, there's another chapter where they captured the press, they, they alerted their bought-off press about this crookedness and at the right time and were able to blacken 
the Sinclair and his, and so they, they and Sinclair actually ended up going to jail over it, uh, even though he was only engaged in things that at any other time the, the Standard Oil would have been involved in too, but they weren't at that time. They set him up basically, and that was the Teapot Dome scandal. It was about taking down the Sinclair Oil Company, knocking them down enough peg so that they would no longer be a threat to Standard Oil. And then they subsequently apparently poisoned Warren Harding. Uh, some specific stuff in here, talking about Rockefeller capturing of the press. They Okay, they, in 1914, the Rockefellers learned two valuable things. They, um, they learned not only do you need to capture the press, but they, they needed to... Oh, and then they wanted to get tax-exempt organizations to get out of taxes, which they had installed with the uh, so-called 16th Amendment, the income tax. But they wanted their loopholes with the tax-exempt so-called philanthropic foundations, and Josephson always calls them so-called philanthropic, and he shows that they're not really philanthropic at all. They're predatory. Uh, but they, they, they used... Okay, in 1914, something happened that taught them a lesson. There was a uh, an iron, what is it? it uh, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company strike in 1914. It was a company in, in Colorado. It was a Rockefeller company, and the employees, the workers were treated so poorly that they went on strike, and Rockefeller bought a bunch of cops and henchmen to go in there and beat the crap out of them and shoot them and kill a few of them. And that, it it became public knowledge. It was covered in the press. And in 1914, Rockefeller got a big public relations black eye over that. So uh, the Rockefellers learned, okay, we have to buy off the press. So in case we ever have to uh, do that again, and it come down hard on people. And we and they also had to, with their philanthropic, so-called philanthropic or tax-exempt organizations, they had to um, hire public relations experts, most notoriously a guy named Ivy Lee, but he wasn't the only one. These public relations experts to uh, massage their their reputation in the media and really tout the philanthropic nature of these predatory, in reality, uh, tax-exempt organizations. Was Edward Bidet's before him or after him as far as uh, the other guy? uh... Who? Edward Bidet's. Did he have any connections? Bidet's? Yeah, he, he doesn't mention him in here, but Bidet's would have been a contemporary and I want to say I've read of a connection before, but I can't say at the moment for sure. But I know Ivy Lee. Okay, <laughs> you want to talk connections? Here's a good connection that's made several several times in this book. Did you know that uh, J.D. Rockefeller and John Foster Dulles are kinsmen <laughs> by marriage? They are. There's a. Yes, he makes that connection. It's not surprising. It's not surprising, but I didn't know that. So he's he's related to the Dulles brothers. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, that's what you get in Josephson's work. You get these just these bombshells over and over. Uh, yeah, John Foster Dulles was. Let's see. He says it later on exactly what the link is, but it's a marriage link, and it's it's a close marriage link. I think it's he was married to a sister, uh, something like that. Married to a Rockefeller sister or niece. Interesting, because now if you look at this, I'm going to read a little more out of this book. If it's all right with you. And okay, real quick, hold on. Uh, one of the one of the main legal firms that the Rockefellers worked with was Sullivan and Cromwell. Looking at page one fifteen, Sullivan and Cromwell was headed by Kinsman John Foster Dulles. So he also headed up one of their main legal firms that they worked with. Yet another connection. Well, that's the, well. That, and that, that, oh, that's, that's the he, reason why they were raised to the top of the. The heap is because of their connections with Rome. Yeah. That's the reason why. It's yep. as simple as that. It's and as three, three sentences down, there is the link between uh, the Rockefellers and John J. McCloy. There's another name you should know. Hmm. Trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation back then. And McCloy, I'm trying to remember, but I know Phelps made the connection with McCloy and the JFK assassination. Later on, McCloy was um, what was he head of head of some intelligence back then, some intelligence agency. I should know that. Interesting. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. Wait, the previous page. The previous page. I told you there's bombshells in Josephson's book. Now, Biz and I sometimes we talked about this. He knew of an anecdote from a guy who served in World War II who found out that uh, Allied bombers were told not to bomb uh, Rockefeller-owned factories in Germany. And he this met a guy who, who, who found that out personally. Now, I had read of a blurb in um, an Anthony Sutton book where he, doc- he documented that happening. Well, here in Josephson's book, page 114, uh, I'll just let's say Dylan Reed and Company. That's another law firm that Rockefeller worked with heavily. Dylan Reed and Company floated the issue that financed the building of the IG Farben skyscraper, the office building in Frankfurt, Germany. And then Josephson writes that by curious coincidence was the only building in Frankfurt that the American and Allied forces were ordered not to shell or bomb. And it came through the war practically intact. <laughs> yeah. There's just little specific bombs in here. Just wow, these connections that that Josephson makes. His books are amazing. They're like time capsules. His books are because people aren't going to know these specifics anymore. Even people who write conspiratorial history books, unless they read it for Josephson's work. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I don't, you know, I have a couple of things that are running through my head. First of all, I don't know where we should go with this. Uh, there's so many things to talk about. You know, uh, I, I'm just, I'm starting to see the clear, uh, when we talk about our, our neck of the woods in North America, the strategy that they had to conquest it, but, um, oh my gosh. 
it's really this. Per- I, I want to read some of this from this book. If that's all right with you, uh, we're now and yeah. uh, this now is chapter one. This is uh, we had a little read a little bit of the foreword in the morning. This one is U.S. betrayed to go along with what you've been talking about. I read about four or five paragraphs real fast here, the best of my ability. For the fourth time within half a century, the people in the United States have found themselves drawn into and forced to fight a war that was not their concern and in which it was not their desire and will to participate. Each On each occasion, the nation was tricked into war by the same cliché. The more uh, observant and intelligent uh, sections of the public have sensed mm, that there is a power behind and above the government that controls and dictates it, its actions without regard to the will of the people. The power has thus far been immune to exposure. So and insultingly confident has this power become that in the last two wars participated by them, precipitated by them, World War II and the Korean War, they have not even made a pretense of complying with the form prescribed by the Constitution and the Declaration of War by Congress. In violation of the Constitution, the United States has been thrown into wars by, quote, royal and the, quote, edict issued by the power behind the government. Now, we're talking about Rome and the Jesuits, folks. Though, ostensibly, at the instance of the assistance of the presidents who have been their puppets. Um, now, we're hearing about this fact. Now, this is way back now, uh, 60 years ago, being warned that the presidents are the puppets, even though most of us have figured this out in the past couple of decades, depending on how old you are, maybe even like myself, uh, past couple of years, uh, after instance of uh, obviously incited by them through their pawns in our own and foreign governments. There can be no question at the late date that our government in Washington for several decades past has been and now is very largely composed of subversives, communists, and their fellow travelers and traitors. Hint, hint, fellow travelers right there, folks. Only a few of them have as yet, of course, that'd be a free Masonic statement there. So only a few of them have as yet openly confessed their betrayal to our land, communist to communist Russia and other foreign agencies. A large number have been exposed as involved in treason. A very few, a very small fraction of the number involved have been caught in the act of treason or perjury in connection with treason and convicted. The trial and conviction of Alger Hiss, Judy uh, Copeland, and William Remington, the confession of Lee Pressman, among others, have given the nation at the expense of millions of dollars legal proof of what has been obvious for decades the, the intellect to the intelligent sinistry. Sinistry. I'm not saying it right. Citizens, okay? Sinistry. <laughs> 
The nation has been betrayed persistently by treason of a wide array of public servants who range from top policymakers such as the, quote, father, end quote, of the United Nations, former Assistant Secretary of State Elger Hiss, to the lowest clerks. I want to bring this up if I'm done reading it. The charges have been made repeatedly by the Committee of Un-American Activities, by members of Congress, and by the informed press and public with a, which with offers of proof, they have all been bruised, brushed aside in the past and labeled as unfounded by administration of President Roosevelt and Truman and by the official agencies appointed by them supposedly to investigate, but actually to whitewash them under the circumstances of clearly bespoke involvement of highest officials in the land of treason. The impassioned bias of President Roosevelt and Truman and their entourages in favor of traitors has raised the question, quote, are they themselves not involved in this treason, conspiracy, to destroy our land, this, its constitution, and its government, end of quote. This suspicion was materially strengthened when there arose the defense of Elger Hiss, Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurt, Stanley Ree, also U.S. Senators, including that mysterious power who has operated for years, sometimes behind the scenes, without official statements, and sometimes unseen, John Foster Dulles. It reached fever heat when the state, when the Secretary of State, Dean uh, Eckerson, publicly professed his friendship and loyalty to the freshly convicted Elger Hiss, his associate in the State Department, and the brother of his law partner, in word, quote, I will not turn my back on Hiss, unquote, that became even more apparent from the hundreds of thousands of dollars expended upon the defense of Hiss in his two trials, that tremendous power of unlimited wealth that supported the conspirators. The refuge he was reported to have been given the home of Benjamin J. Butterweiser, partner of Cone Loeb Lee, I guess it's Loeb Company, and assistant to John J. McCauley, American High Commissioner of Occupied Germany, confirmed the impression. And we can go on if you want. But do I want to go into this a couple of things? First of all, he points out here the hidden hand and then John Foster Dulles. And then we talk about this. Uh, what do you know about oh, Elger? Elger? I just yes. remembered something. What is that? Okay, go ahead. I just remembered something, Michael, about John J. McCoy and uh, something that um, – you know, I think Josephson even writes about this later on uh, in this book, but I just remembered Phelps says this too. I think Josephson does write about it. McCloy, during World War II, he was the one put in charge of being in charge of determining which sites would be bombed by the Allies. He was in, put in, installed in that high of a position. And so look at what he did, though. 
he made sure that Rockefeller-owned uh, factories would not be bombed, and he then would have been responsible for the bombing of Dresden. And here, I think Phelps is uh, on target. I think Phelps is is being accurate when Phelps says that 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 was uh, that was uh, one of the most, if not the most, Protestant city in in Germany. And, and what that raid really was about is uh, an extermination of Protestants. And so John G. McCloy made the decision to do that. <laughs> uh, I smell Jesuit. Yeah. I do too. I smell religion all over all this stuff. This is what I smell, in particular the Romish Church. Um, uh, Elger, Elger Hiss, you know, he, you know, he's a very interesting character. Supposedly, he was involved in the establishment of the United Nations, and both as a U.S. Department official and UN official. Um, first question I have is, how can you possibly be both? Without not being treasonous to begin with, someone allowed him to be both. It's not like some kind of mystery or some kind of. Uh, how did this guy end up being accused of being a Soviet spy? What are your uh, thoughts the, on all that? The, Josephson, well, it's I can tell you, Josephson's take. Uh, he de- dedicates a whole chapter to that. No. He makes it clear that Alger Hiss was definitely was a communist spy. And, but he was one of the useful tools of the Rockefellers and the Dulleses, and they spent all that money defending him because he was very useful to them. And they, they did their best to – I think at a certain point they had to cut their losses, but they, they, boy, they helped him out to the max, not because they cared about uh, his, his as a person, but because he, he, he was trained well and, and he, did, he, he did what he was told. Um, you know, he definitely was a, a legitimate communist spy, according to Joseph, and I, I believe he proved that. Hmm. I guess what I'm asking, and I'll do the other day, what does it mean to be a communist spy? If the guy was involved uh, not only creating, creating the UN and also being, uh, like I said, uh, part of the... Um, part of the uh, U.S. State Department official, how do you end up then, quote, being a communist spy? Uh, this has been, you know what, the more and more you study this, the more you realize you've been freaking lied to about everything, and it's just a big, giant psyops and a mind game, isn't it? Yes, and the way <laughs> that you're in the State Department, the way, the way that you're in the, the, the way you're in the State Department, and you're also a communist spy, is the uh, the Rockefellers owned the State Department, according to Josephson at that time. They controlled the State Department. So if they and call- the, Rockefellers, the Rockefellers were in bed with the communists because ultimately the Rockefellers, they want control of everything, the oil and the medical and religion and everything. And the the... The form of government they are pursuing is communist uh, and fascist, um, which there's so little difference between the two. But it, 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 it's a totalitarian socialism. George Orwell called it uh, oligarchical collectivism. So I, I think he's right. It doesn't really matter if it's fascism or socialism. That's, that's, they're, they're different shades of the same thing. 
It's oligarchical collectivism. That's what uh, the Rockefellers are pursuing. And so they, they used guys like Alger Hiss, and they installed men like spies like that in high places to make decisions to uh, facilitate that the, um, the oligarchical collectivist takeover of what once was a uh, United States Republic. That's long, long gone now. Um, yeah, I'm just looking up this guy, uh, McCoy, and seeing his connections with the Jesuits in Rome. Um, two Roman Catholic priests. Uh, was he McCoy? What did, what was his connections with Rome? Do you know anything? I'm, I'm sorry if I, uh, I'm focusing on that, folks, but uh, there's something not right about John J. McCoy as well. So, if you connect, they start connecting the dots. One of the things you're going to do eventually is what you're going to do is you're going to have to deal with religion, unfortunately, which is something I never was interested in in my entire life until I started going down this journey to figure out what life is all about. And then I look at over and over and over and over again these guys and their connections with the religion, in particular the Romus religion. One way or the other, Catholicism. I am almost, I'm almost positive that Phelps had identified uh, Bacloy as a Knight of Malta, and it, 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 it's almost a, a, a slam dunk that he would have been a Knight of Malta, given where he was placed. Right. So this goes back to my thought that's been plaguing me for the past couple of weeks, and that is as I look at how they've taken over versus North America and how they use British the British Empire, and in particular they use uh, quote-unquote Protestants. And as they take over a place like in Canada or the United States of America, they use quote-unquote Protestants. But right behind them always... Well, actually, before them is the Jesuits, then the Protestants, and then right behind them is the Romanists, and they take over everything. Uh, it looks like here, this with uh, John J. McCloy, he as chairman of the powerful Council of Foreign Relations, so pretty confident that he's Knights of Malta and has connections with Rome right there. And, and he was also he was also head of the uh, Rockefeller Institute too. The um, the foundation, I believe. He was, was he? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And he had a big involvement with uh, the Japanese Americans in World War II, heavily involved in the U.S. government program, and turning Japanese Americans in World War II. And uh, I'm sorry if we can deviate here a little bit because it just goes on and on and on. And if you start, I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, I can, I can, I can use. I can roll with you because Jeff, uh, Josephson writes about so much. You want to talk about the uh, World War II and the Japanese? He's, this guy was this also is, uh, really fascinating. McCoy also was involved with the rat lines, it looks like. Did you know that? He had, yeah. he had the power uh, of a. He says here, this McCoy once sta- uh, stated, quote, I had the powers of a dictator as high commissioner of the Allied forces in West Germany. But I think I was a benevolent dictator. Unquote. 
um, then he goes on to talk about here how he helped him, uh, a particular person, but the boy refused instead. The CIC helped him, him being Klaus Barney. Uh, I believe that it is. Um, looks like a Nazi. I helped him flee to Bolivia with help of the Rat Line Organized U- U.S. Intelligence Services and the Croatian Roman Catholic priest uh, Dragunov. Uh, of course, the dreaded. So this guy helped. Uh, this is how connected these guys are. I mean, it's a twisted tale. My goodness me. <laughs> To be involved with the release and the freeing of uh, Kronoslav Dragunov is, that's just a lot right there. Huge, huge statement that McCloy was part of. So, anyways. And McCloy McCloy was constantly elevated by Rockefeller to be head of Rockefeller institutions. So there's another clear tie between Rockefellers and Rome. So what 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 were some of the Rockefellers institutions? Let's talk about that for a little bit and their involvement. Uh, what you the tax exempt foundation? Sure, you know we we've heard about it all our lives, but knew know nothing about it really. I mean, thanks thanks to PB, uh, PBS, we've heard about the Rockefeller institutions all our lives, but do we even know anything about it really? Uh, well, of course, it, it, it was an incredibly brilliant ploy. Uh, for, they, they were able to implement that to get out of taxes, first of all, to preserve their wealth from inheritance tax. And also, they were able to use it, to hide behind it, and use it as this banner, this shield of philanthropy to get the, the, the good press. Uh, and, of course, the, the good press, the good PR, helped them to really be more predatory than ever. And then also they were able to use funds from the tax-exempt foundations under the name, under the guise of philanthropy, and use those funds to take over public education and write the curriculum for public education from the top down to the bottom. Mm. So there's another socialistic takeover. And of course, then you, you get to, in the early 1950s, you had the two United States congressional hearings, congressional investigations, the Reese Committee and the Cox Committee, both of them looking into whether there were cries about it. There were accusations. Rumors were going around that, yes, the the Rockefeller Institute, the the Rockefeller Foundations, these tax-exempt foundations, were were buying education and corrupting it to control education. And these two uh, tax-exempt, I'm sorry, these two congressional investigations, the Reese Committee and the Cox Committee, if you look those up on Wikipedia now, you will find that, oh, they didn't find anything. However, that's a bunch of, uh, that's excrement. On the official record, they didn't find anything, and that's because the Rockefellers had moles on the committee itself. 
on one instance, they had uh, they had bought off a uh, a congressman from Ohio who was crooked crooked as a trombone. His name was Wayne Hayes. I think he later got drummed drummed out of Congress for messing around with prostitutes or something like that. But before that happened, he was obviously on the Rockefeller payroll. He was now you only get this when you read the transcript. Read the trans the congressional transcript, you you get what happened. He any time there was a witness of any substance during that committee, Wayne Hayes started started having like embarrassing like uh, uh, Tourette's syndrome conniption fits. He, like, literally every 20 or 30 seconds, he was interrupting loudly and, and childishly interrupting the investigation. Now, he should have been grabbed by his collar by the bailiff and thrown out of there, but, of course, that, that's not going to happen. Instead, they, they killed the hearing. They eventually killed it because they, they couldn't proceed. This Wayne Hayes wouldn't let him proceed. He was throwing... Uh, Tourette's syndrome tantrums. Uh, and so you get that when you read the transcript. The other way, you, the other way you get that. By the way, you don't have that happen unless they were really onto something. Uh, the other way you get that is read one of the probably one of the ten or fifteen most one of the ten or ten or fifteen uh, most important books. Also, you need to read. Uh, it's called the Tax Exempt Foundations by Rene Wormser. You get it. In that book, you get the true story. They really were onto something. And you also, in Renee Wormser's book, you also get an anecdote. This is a personal anecdote of Wormser. He was, uh, what was he? He was counsel. He was head counsel, one of the head counsels. I think he was a head, head legal counsel in that investigation. After it was over, it was either one of the Fords one of the Ford dynasty or one of the Rockefeller dynasty came up to him in person off the record and basically confessed, told him, yeah, we are capturing education. Yeah, we did it. And, but it was too late and it, to do anything about it. It was off the record, but that's just a little personal anecdote of, of Wormser. Fantastic book again. So, uh, you want to know about the Tacky Gem Foundation? It's how they preserve their wealth, how they squash others from ever attaining wealth like they do and it is how they captured education and um trying to remember if they used it also to capture religion i'm not sure but i know they used it to capture education i think they also used it to capture medicine medicine as well because um personally uh, this is a fantastic book but the, the medical chapter was just the most interesting to me uh for of a few reasons, um, but they, it's really sad. They they can't. Uh, you also it helps to read some medical history, some American medical history books. It, uh, there's one called Nature Cures. Nature Cures. The author's name it starts with a W. I forget now what his last name was. It is a book which traces in, in the 1800s there was liberty, there was freedom, and there was uh, liberty of inquiry in, uh, and patient freedom in the 1800s in America. But when the Rockef- with the rise of the Rockefellers at the turn of the 20th century, early, early 1900s, the Rockefellers early on saw 
with help, I'm sure, from their snake oil salesman progenitor, they saw that the patent medicines held the most profit. The uh, the vaccines, the uh, the phar- petrochemical pharmaceutical drugs, that's where the profit lay. And, the, and the, eventually the surgeries, too, the often needless surgeries. And so the Rockefeller is seeing that the one branch of med- uh, of all these competing branches of medicine, the one that held the most lucrative profits was uh, allopathy, what we now call mainstream medicine or the, the AMA, your MD. Uh, allopathy is what the other branches called it, and of course the MDs don't like to be called that. But uh, so the Rockefellers backed allopathy, and they set out on a on a witch hunt. Uh, they they used their control of the press to uh, scurrilously. Uh, and they use their control of uh, law enforcement officials. They um, often, with violence, they would uh, uh, break up, bust up their competition. They used uh, legal maneuvers. They, they crushed the naturopaths, the homeopaths, the chiropractics, all of these other competing uh, medical uh, fields with at least as much, if not more, promise than allopathy held. And, and, and so... What happens then in the early 20th century, there were left over from the 1800s, there were all of these other, there were dozens of medical schools of like chiropractic medical schools and naturopathic medical schools and homeopathic medical schools all around the country. And with the the Rockefellers and their money, they shut them all down, almost all of them down. And they even shut down the allopathic medical school that they couldn't control. And they, this, uh, yeah, they did use uh, tax-exempt foundation funds to do this. And what they did, they, they, they centered on a few select major allopathic medical schools that they could control. And they became like a monopoly centers uh, of medicine. You couldn't become a doctor unless you went there. And, oh gosh, where was one of them? I think Johns Hopkins was one of them, but um, there, were, there was another bigger, more notorious one. Um, shoot. I can look it up in here. But understand, here's what they did. Uh, oh, I'm thinking not, I'm, okay, I'm not talking, I'm not even referring right now to uh Okay, I could be referring to uh, the training of doctors, but more specifically, uh, Josephson writes about the training of researchers and the actual research that went on. Hmm. The research as in, as in research to cure new diseases. Now, in, in human history, always in human history, without fail, new discoveries, important new discoveries, have always been individuals working by themselves without the interference of others. It's easy to get too many cooks in the kitchen, always, in, in any field. Of course, we live in a day and age where everybody thinks groupthink is, is better. Uh, well, and this is where, where it comes from. It comes from the Rockefellers dumbing uh, us down. In the, re, the medical research centers, the Rockefellers set up controls so that uh, new discoveries were checked. Uh, scientists, researchers always had to work in research groups. They were not allowed to work by themselves. 
And if any of them did work by themselves and come up with a discovery, they, their discovery would either be bought and hidden or, the, or, or they would be, uh, that doctor would be told to shut up, you're going to lose your job, that researcher. And occasionally they do let some of these, if they figure out they can profit from a new discovery, then they will co-opt the discovery and call it, they, they will uh, take, take credit for it, take group credit for it. They, they won't give credit to the individual. Uh, he can take credit as part of the group. But it's a, just a complete uh, groupthink mentality over medical research. And Josephson makes it clear. Remember, he's an MD himself. Josephson says the, the reason why the diseases are no longer being cured in the 20th century is because of the Rockefellers and this, this group, this coerced group research project. It, it throws a blanket. Uh, it smothers real investigation. So that was a fantastic, very interesting chapter, I thought, the one he writes about Rockefeller co-opting of medicine and, med and medical research. Well, it's very evil, that's for sure. <laughs> Gosh. Definition of evil, huh? called Rockefeller. What is... Um... You know, it, it makes me think about... Um... Once again, you know, who's controlling the Rockefellers? Why are they allow the powers that be allowing these guys to exploit disease for profit, quote unquote? Uh, is it really for profit or is it just more just um and it's almost like it's an expansion uh of the Inquisition itself. I don't know, but uh, let's go back to this you're talking about uh religion. Their their effects, what they were what they were doing about it. You're asking the question. And in the book, it talks about this. It says an address before the Protestant Council, in New York City, in July 31st, 1945. John D. Jr. revealed, however, that his aims in respect to religion were much more far-reaching. In this address, which has been published for district distribution by the council under the title of the Christian Church, what of its future, he suggests the, its transformation into the Church of the Living God, that's in quotes, the Church of the Living God, and eliminating support and subordinating, quote, ordinances, rituals, creed, and all non-essentials, end of quote, and fostering a Marxism in the church through such agencies as the, the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America by Rockefeller Foundation by the Rockefeller Foundation there emerges the idea that the real intent and purpose is the destruction of religion as the modern world knows it in replacement by the ancient concept of religion in which the, quote, living God, end of quote, is the ruler of the state. In Rome, sense of the sense of, quote, rex imperator et dios, end of quote. In the sense that Stalin is the god of religion of communism, can it be that this is one of the objectives of the Rockefeller uh, empire 
and the John D. Jr. Sunday School classes, nevertheless, brought rich re- returns and publicity favorable sentiment and seduction of the public opinion. The mask of religious honesty, combined with the sham of pseudo philanthropy, was invaluable in blinding the public to the true nature of the activities of the Rockefeller interests which are here related. He held close and purpose to control both direct and indirect over the activities of the philanthropies, uh, philanthropies and over the frankly commercial and public activities of the empire. He was a missionary's he was a missionary zeal to the to force others to accept the brand of salvation that he had to offer and the mold them and affairs generally according to his designs and purposes. That derived in part from his training, in part from his unbound zeal for the characteristics of his clan, a part of the influence of the Reverend Frederick Taylor Gates, who, at whose side he worked, nothing conceivably could have gained the support of their philanthropies without his instigation, approval, and consent, no matter how much their was maintaining the appearance of independence of his agency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> interesting that the influence, and we look at the modern church today and how it is so much in line with what the Rockefellers, in particular, John D. Jr., his, 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 his goal of transforming Protestant church into a Marxist-type system, a humanitarian or whatever you want to call it. So, so there you go. There, this was there too. So not only was medi- medical industry, the energy uh, sector uh, and religion, these, these folks were instrumental in infiltrating all the major tenets of a society, weren't they? It's amazing. Well, this is yet, yet another reason, aside from the 20, 30 Bible verses we could come up with, uh, which warn against forming an incorporated church. Uh, but also, this is yet another reason, because you see how easy it is for some monopolist, somebody who gets enough power and takes over enough of the government of a nation to also take over the incorporated church industry, the business of incorporated churches. Those churches, those 99% of churches now in the U.S. that are uh, unequally yoked, at least talking about the evangelical ones. Rome always, of course, doing its own thing. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if you see it, but on pages 310 and 311, there's a big long list of church bodies, so-called church bodies, which constitute the Federal Council of Churches. All of these incorporated church industries here. It's a big, long list. It's really unfortunate because uh, that's that's not what Jesus called people to do. That's not what Jesus called his churches to do, set up seminaries and become incorporated, none of that. Uh, people forget the uh, for the first century after Christ, you know who does a great job of documenting this is uh, Greg Dixon in his book, uh, The Trail of Blood Revisited. 
Uh, I'm sure you could get this history elsewhere, though, but for the, the first century after Christ, when Rome, under the, the Caesars, the pre-Pope Caesars, uh, when Rome was uh, throwing Christians to the lions, uh, it was not because they were worshiping Christ. Rome never changes, whether it's uh, obviously pagan Rome or if it's mystery Babylon papal Rome. Rome never changes. Rome doesn't give a hoot who you worship, what his name is, or what it is. They don't care. All they care is that you that you officially declare that it's Rome that gives you the permission to worship that. That's all they care about. That you have put some official status on it. It's Rome above that. And the early churches wouldn't do that. It, the, with the, with the pagan Rome, they called it giving licit to Caesar. I think they had to pay a, a fee. But that's where we get the, the word license today. Christians had to go down to the Roman fountain or whatever and put in their licit to Caesar. They wouldn't do it. Unlike every other, all the other uh, pagan religions, they wouldn't do that. And so Rome persecuted them and massacred them. Whereas, my goodness, you look at American evangelical churches today, they're lining up in droves. They're, they're tripping over themselves to, 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 to give licit to Caesar, to sign that incorporated contract, that state incorporation in their 501c3 papers. It's so shameful. And yet, of course, we're always told, we're told by these, the hireling shepherds who speak, the Nicolaites and hireling shepherds who speak, on Sundays up there on the elevated pulpit. We're told that um, we're reminded of the, of the New Testament verses where Paul warns uh, uh, that uh, we are still to meet together. You know, we, we should be going to church, guys like you and I. Uh, well, you know, that's true. However, you know, that was written in the New Testament. And show me a New Testament church today. Show me an unincorporated church today that doesn't have a, a guy called a pastor in, in, as a, a, a that's a permanent head of it, because that is a father light. That's another religious title. Pastor, reverend, uh, father, rabbi, those are all religious titles, and Jesus said, don't do it. Uh, the Puritans, and the, well, more so the pilgrims, the pure, pilgrims had it right when they called each other brothers. Yeah, you have brothers who get up and teach more. It doesn't mean they're, they're it, it, permanently in this position of teacher, spiritual teacher over you. That, again, that, that's a priest, and that we know everybody's a priest. We're all priests, according to Christ. Uh, so anyway, yeah, um, everybody gives a list of Caesar now. Except for, well, where I was going with that is anytime somebody hits you with the we're supposed to be going to church and meeting, it's true, but the sad fact is that was written in the New Testament, and there aren't any more, there's about 1% of New Testament churches around. If I knew where one was, I'd be going to it. But look, I'm telling hireling shepherds from now on, yeah, show me a New Testament church and I'm there. And of course, he's going to take the bait and say that his church is a New Testament church, and then I'm going to, I'm going to have to inform him what state incorporation means because the guy should know and he doesn't. <laughs> but this is. This, this goes so far, this so far, and, and vast. And as you and I have spoken about at other times, this affects how they counsel couples, because feminism has become public policy, and they've uh, 
when a, a husband and wife goes to one of these hireling shepherds, as I have found out the hard way, the hireling shepherd is going to be really receptive to the wife when she complains about her husband, what he's doing wrong. But anything that you, the husband, say where your wife needs to scripturally uh, fix herself, that hireling shepherd is going to be deaf to you, men, husbands, because he is probably terrified of going against feminism. Uh, even if he has the wits to, and the integrity to, to do so, he's still, he's still going to be terrified because he could lose his, his incorporated position. His, he could lose his salaried position. The man is a hireling shepherd. He will not defend you. He will not stand up for you, husbands. He will not defend your scriptural rights, husbands and fathers, because he is a hireling shepherd, and he will behave exactly as Christ told you he would behave. He will not have your back, husbands and fathers. He will stab you in the back. Well, I can't argue with it. None of the day. It's quite, it's quite tragic, actually. It's, um, yeah. I I wish <laughs> it's such a depressing road, brother. <laughs> go down this to be it's to wake up to one's reality um, is to see how you know how these these Luciferian Roman Romish controlled dupes like the the Rockefellers how they use their um, quote unquote. They, they exploit this, the spirit of charity in order to uh, have personal gain and to corrupt us. So. And when we look at this, yeah, you're right. At this point, there really isn't. A, I can't find it either. I mean, you can find it in words only, and you get to a point you're just like, well, um, where do I go with this? Uh, there's really nowhere to go. Uh, we're going to hear some watered-down adolescent-type sermon where... I'm at fault for everything that's wrong with what's around me. If I would just change and repent, if I just would be different than the world and my life and my, you know, the woman in my life and the kids and everything else would be so much better. Never really addressing the reality of what's going on. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the pastor is he's responsible. He's become a servant of Satan. And he doesn't even know it. He doesn't know who he is. He's the classic example of uh, what Christ talks about there with the, the woman at the well and talking about how you know not who you worship. They don't know who they worship anymore. They have no idea that they're actually worshiping men like Rockefeller, uh, the Jesuits, um, the banksters. It's interesting you know. when you... When you you read accounts of the lives of these oligarchs that Josephson lays out, uh, he does more of this in his the last book. But you you read books like this, and he shows you how they live their lives. It's clear that in the lives of these oligarchs, these are clans that are male dominated. But for us peasants, us peasants, we are not allowed to have male dominated society. Only the oligarchs can have that uh, rights of, of the the women are very much second class citizens, and and in these oligarchs' clans, and apparently some of them have committed suicide and, and gone gone insane because of that. Uh, 
That, some of that's covered in the last book by Joseph Sin that one uh, studied in criminal psychopathy. He goes into that, the, what befell, befalls the Rockefeller women. Hmm. It's interesting, too. Now, nobody's advocating that. I'm saying that it's gone too far the other way for us. It's been forced that way. Uh, Rockefeller, he, uh, John, John D. Jr., he, I believe it was John D. Jr., he considered us the masses. They calls us um, the mob. Uh, he calls them, us the monsters. We're the monsters. No one in my family will ever rest on land controlled by that monster. And uh, well, wait a minute. I, maybe I got this wrong here. I have got this wrong. Anyways, um, he calls us the mob. He calls us the the, the really leak. I just well, I'm I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm going down the wrong path here. See, John D's patriotism and his ruthlessness with the members. Of even his own family are illustrated by his relations with his brother Franklin. Franklin volunteered for service in the Civil War. John D. opposed enlistment and bitterly refused to lend his brother $75 for the purchase of equipment he needed. He went on to return from the war. Franklin went into the oil business. John D. stripped him of the business. This is the mentality, folks. Franklin's established estimate of his brother John D is as accurate a description of the Klan as he has ever been published. Removing the body of his children from the family cemetery plot in Cleveland, Franklin said, no one in my family ever rested on the land controlled by that monster, John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> so even for uh, uh, the very early age, uh, very early on, this Rockefeller mob, this clan, they were, I mean, just brutal guys. I mean, they were just mean, mean-spirited and uh, Never loved this land, never loved this country. It's always an opportunity to exploit. And I find that when we go back now to what we're talking about, whether it's the medical industry and how they they bow down to this guy or the churches, what, what the heck? Clearly they had no idea who they were dealing with. Because um, these guys were just cunning... Uh, and you look at um, they're they're the high end of the of the mafia, aren't they? It's basically the American mafia. I don't know what else to say about the Rockefellers, except that they are the pinnacle. They are one of the pinnacles, the upper echelon of the American mafia. And it's clear that that's what runs this country as far as when it comes to the banking, the political system, even religion itself at this point. It's all controlled by a bunch of gangsters, a criminal element. Well, and Josephson uh, makes it clear. Josephson shows you how the crimes, the high crimes of the Rockefellers make the mafia look like extremely pitifully small potatoes. Their, their crimes are way worse than the mafia. 
Uh, absolutely. The mafia, the, mafia, the mafia cannot start world wars. The Rockefellers started both world wars. He shows you how. <laughs> Which is interesting because if you, you, if you look at that, then, you know. So it gets back to this whole thing, you know, what is, how do you explain, unless the Rockefellers are the example of the beast system and then the Jesuits in Rome or the image of the beast type of thing, the clerical image of the beast. I don't know what else to say. I don't know how else to describe it, except that um, maybe they even punished their brother for for joining, for wanting to be in the Civil War. Taken aside, they punished him. To think that these people even care the slightest about as far as patriotism goes, um, oh gosh. Well, also what they did, and they, they weren't alone in this. Uh, I think Gould did this, and Vanderbilt did this, or something like it. Uh, but during that war, and no doubt others, one, one of their favorite tricks was uh, they would buy up bulk quantities of really shoddy guns, and I forget where they would get them, but they would sometimes they would boy, they would buy up uh, shoddy guns and then sell them to the US government for soldiers and they would be they would they would be next to worthless you know blow up in the soldiers hands and the the lowest quality firearms you could get and um then they would sell them cheap to the government and the government <laughs> and they would of course sell them at exorbitant prices sometimes they would buy up uh, refuse guns from the government and shine them up and sell them back to the government. They had it all down. They had it all down. <laughs> but they didn't care if the gun was useless when that soldier needed it. They just wanted their profit. It's very, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, just, it's, it's disheartening. It really is. And it's, uh, it makes you think, you know, what, why do we care about, any of those, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, what, what we're talking about. I'm saying about politics, religion, the government. If it's just a bunch of freaking, you know, the mafia running it, what's the difference between the United States and, and uh, uh, Russia and uh, in Britain and... Uh, Germany and etc. There really isn't a difference, is there? It's all there really are at the heads of all these governments, including our own. Well, I shouldn't say our own because it's not even our government. It's just a claiming that they are a government. And, um, they're all in cahoots together. I mean, <clears throat> America was selling the weapons to con- you know in World War II to. Uh, Selling goods and weapons and etc. to communist Russia, but in turn they were selling it to uh, Nazi Germany. <laughs> they were all in cahoots together at the top, and so, so we look yeah, at this. and they were the ones. Go ahead. They were the ones arming Japan. Uh, it's interesting because. Do you remember in 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria, and that that was a big deal. Oh yeah. Uh, the the rape the rape of uh, Man King and all that. Uh, Josephson shows you how the origins of that was uh, Rockefeller oil fields in um, 
in China. <laughs> they had a warlord. There was Rockefeller had control of oil fields. General Smedley Butler even wrote that he his when he was in China, all he did was guard. Uh, he, he was just a policeman guarding the Rockefeller oil fields in China. But Butler wrote that. But there was a warlord who, a Japanese warlord, no, was a Japanese, a Chinese warlord, I think. Yeah, who wanted to make some money on just by on his own, and so he sold his his stake, uh, his plot of land to the Japanese. And the Japanese came in and started drilling for oil there, and it was driving the Rockefellers crazy. And what, uh, somehow they, they were able to, I'd have to check, check how, but they were able to get the, the, the Japanese out of there. And the Japanese were really pissed off about it. And so that's when the Japanese went back into Manchuria, and that's why they did so much damage. They were making sure especially that the damage was done to all the rock, what they knew were Rockefeller owned. And so again, it's Rockefeller oil wars that led to world war one and two. It's just astounding. Oh, you were talking about the scrap oil. Okay. 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 Uh, The the scrap that was sold. Um, All right. So, but after that, so, so you get the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers know that they want a war with Japan, and it, it really pisses them off what Japan has been doing to their oil fields. However, Japan still needs to be built up in order to fight the U.S. They still can't take on the U.S. So, um, the the Rockefellers, through their connections with the munitions industries. They were responsible for, and the State Department, their control of the State Department, the Rockefellers were largely the ones who sent scrap iron to Japan in the 30s to, uh, so they could build war machinery. And also, there was a, something called the Institute of Pacific Relations. I'm sure you've come across it, the IPR. It's always written about alongside the CFR in these books, the Rockefeller-dominated institutes. It's another one. The, I, the IPR. It, um, McCarthy, in the McCarthy hearings, it was literally proven that, that the IPR was a communist organization. And Josephson shows you how the IPR knew the, the, head, the heads of the, uh, the, the people running the uh, Institute of, for Pacific Relations, the Rockefeller uh, organization. Those people... Uh, knew and provoked the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. There was, there was also a, they, a spy network high up in them. And he gives the name of the main person, too. It starts with an S. But the IPR knew the Japanese were going to bomb Pearl Harbor ahead of time. Of course, we know that FDR and his cabinet and Marshall, George Marshall did, too. But this IPR organization did, too, and that's what they wanted. It's just... They foment the wars, and then they profit from the wars. And they finance both sides, and they, if they're, and they feud with control of certain industries like oil. There, sometimes there is fighting, but it's fighting between big monopoly organizations like Standard Oil versus Royal Dutch Shell. That's where the real fighting is going on. I mean, that's the, the real important fighting. The people dying on the battlefields, that, that's, that's just small time to them 
yeah, with his father for them. Um, yeah, I'm going to look at the reason, well, something else here from the book. Um, I could find it now. <clears throat> uh, where did I go? Maybe I lost it. Talking about 1917 and the chairman of uh, this, I believe it was the Senate. Uh, probably lost it. Uh, <clears throat> anyways, be, uh, being warned about the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and how they sur- the, uh, took over the United States government and uh, the Constitution back then and warned the people. It has something to do with the New Deal. And the, uh, the other thing that was interesting was... Uh, Gosh, Otto something Bismarck, the uh, German German Chancellor or whatever he was. The title was yeah, uh, Teutonic Knight Prince Otto von Bismarck, a Teutonic Knight who bound by the Order of Thousands Year Oath to conquer the world and launch the welfare and social service program that now parades the New Deal. And See, uh, Michael, that, that, that's where uh, Josephson had it a bit wrong, and he amended himself later on. At, at this stage, he's blaming Bismarck and Prussia for all this. But you and I know, and I think Josephson figured out later on, that um, Prussia was dominated, uh, well, before Bismarck, <clears throat> right before that, uh, Prussia was dominated by the Jesuits. Now, and Bismarck himself, I know at least according to Phelps, was very much anti-Jesuit. And that's, you get into the whole uh, the Battle of Sedan, the 1870 war between France and, and Germany, and a big part of that was um, Bismarck sh- uh, well, what about showing the, up, basically. The, what about uh, the, the claim here in this book that uh, we're talking about uh, I told Bismarck or whatever Bismarck that he was became the foster father of Marxism and communism. His objective in doing these things was the world conquest. Deutschland. I don't think that, I don't I, you and I know that Marxism you communism you trace back to the uh the the reductions in Paraguay. Yeah, well, you trace yeah. it back further than than Bismarck. Yeah, further than that. Just, and by the way, those it's not just Paraguay. I, it drives me nuts because it was all throughout from the, the Argentina all the way to Canada. There was the, product, the, the practice of reduction camps. There were reduction yep. camps in yep. the state of Ohio and Pennsylvania, folks, prior to the, uh, the, the Protestants or the Puritans or whatever you want to call them, the we'll call them Protestants, moved in. They first bring in the Jesuits. They start these reduction camps. After It's fascinating what they do. So they bring in the Jesuits and their explorers, and they, always the Jesuits are along with the, the priestcraft with the explorers. They uh, infiltrate in the, the topography, the land. They infiltrate the people, their, their cultures. They learn about their cultures, understand who they're all about. 
Then the next thing they do is they end up bringing in their goods. They're infested with all sorts of diseases. And if anybody, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who think that uh, they didn't know what they're doing. They had no understanding of disease and germ warfare. Well, I don't buy that crap. I think that they knew damn well what they were doing, and it was a masterful plan when it comes to We're going to talk about more about this tomorrow with uh, uh, with this with the genocide in the name of God, but they used these uh, disease-riddled uh, blankets and trinkets and clothing and all that, knowing for well, I'm sure they figured now, it out. I'm sure they figured out with the, the, the experimentation that was going on with uh, Columbus and other earlier explorers, that they knew exactly what the consequences are of giving these... Uh, blankets, et cetera, these folks. So they wipe them out, then they bring in the Protestants to, to till the land, to cut the forests and all that, and then they go from there. So it's a, what I find truly disturbing and masterfully evil is how they use, quote-unquote, Protestants to settle North America and other parts of, of the world. They come in and then basically kick them off their land. <laughs> and you you brought that okay. up with that book from uh, about the Canada or Vancouver, the, uh, Quebec, the tragedy of Quebec. So. Tragedy of Quebec. There's a little bit more to that story though. And okay, so in Canada, it was the Protestant farmers, some of them from American farmers from Massachusetts, who went up there and settled Quebec and reproduced and were thriving and. Unlike the, the, the French Catholics that were there, they developed the land and built it up. And, and, and then you're right. Then later on, uh, Rome encouraged the, the Romanists to uh, take it over through uh, immigration and uh, overpopulation, you know, just like is happening now in the American Southwest. However, there's a, there's a bit more to it. Whenever they could, uh, they would also send the Jesuits over to exterminate the, the Protestants, who, Protestant would-be settlers. Uh, there's another book, and it's written, I think, I'm pretty sure the guy's a Catholic writer because he's rather sympathetic to the Romanist, Roman side. However, the, it's very clear what he's writing about at times is really dirty history, uh, specifically what the Jesuits did. Uh, one of the most unlucky people in the world, aside from the Albigenses and the Waldenses, were the, the, the Huguenots in France uh-huh. in the, uh, what, uh, 1500s. Of course, they, first they get wiped out, at the, ambushed and wiped out at the at St. Bartholomew Massacre. But you, you, what you, you also had some Huguenots who came over to the New World and tried to settle and they tried to settle in Florida. And what <laughs> these were people who were loyal to their king. They wanted to serve their king. They were Frenchmen, but they were Protestants. And so what the Jesuits did, they sent Spain over to literally wipe, wipe out this, this little tiny seed of a Huguenot colony of a few hundred, they sent Spain over to completely massacre them. And so, uh, yeah, that's um, it's regional Florida history. If you live in Florida, you probably know about it, but you, you, if you know your history there. But uh, you, you're not going to get taught that elsewhere. But that is in the book um, 
The Jesuits in North America by Francis Parkman. And I believe um, also there were some Huguenots in, no, I don't know if there were Huguenots. I think some of them were. But the, um, the first two settlers, the leaders who, who tried to settle Canada for France, uh, Samuel Champlain, and then the next guy, his name was Fortier. They were astute men. They were leaders. They were competent. And they, they could have got it done. They could have got it done much more much better than happened. What you get from reading this, again, I think he's a Catholic writer, Francis Parkman, in the Jesuits in North America, that if, if you wonder why uh, the, Je- the France lost to Britain, in the French and Indian War, and then later on when they lost uh, the, uh, Quebec to, the, to the, the, the British in that battle between Montcalm and Wolfe on the, what is it, the field, the Plain of Abraham. The reason is simple. It's really easy to figure out when you read that Parkman book. Uh, you had some, some Frenchmen who were very competent, and they, they were pleading with their king, let's set it up, let's get this going, let's get this colony going. We know what we're doing, we can, we can do this. And they, they were trying to build up this colony in France, but they were thwarted. The, the, it was always the Jesuits, who, the French Jesuits thwarted them because they weren't doing it the Jesuit way. And so they put up roadblocks, and they stymied these poor Frenchmen. And so you wonder what happened. Why did France lose Canada to Britain? It was the Jesuits. You, you get that clearly from that book, uh, The Jesuits in North America by Francis Parkman. Which is interesting because, you know, then it, it begs the question, who was running Britain all that time? And then if you look at that's some of the things that I want to talk, hopefully with this and all that, is about uh, the connections. Uh, King James, his, his family's connections with uh, the Jesuits and with Rome, and uh, it's, a, it's a brutal reality that we have to deal with. I mean, it seems to me that they... <clears throat> part of the, what was going on with North America between the Spanish, the French, and the English was who was actually going to finally dominate it to dominate uh, North America, there had to be a lot of concessions made to Rome in order to make that happen. Because in the day, it sounds to me, at least the impression I'm getting is that they had the final say, the papacy at the time, the Jesuits and their influence uh, had the final say of who was going to be the uh, the power, the rulers, if you be, for North America. And whatever, uh, however, Britain went about doing it. They're the ones that won, and uh, you know, and uh, people uh, things are so much different than they ever tell you. So, uh, I'm going to send this over to anybody who wants its interest. You can look it up the the Kahuka, that's C A H O K A K I A, the pre-Columbian American city. That interesting enough, the Jesuits chose to be uh, what was now commonly referred to as the New uh, Vatican of the, or the Vatican of the West, and that'd be St. Louis. They chose this particular site and location. And if you find out, folks, and the, uh, the numbers are changing constantly. Um, one thing that was certain when the Jesuits and the French showed up that this particular city in St. Louis, a region alone, was larger than London or the majority of the. Uh, 
European cities. So we're now talking about a group of people that they, they claim to be savages and primitive and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, it looks like they were pretty advanced for what the time and what was needed of them. So a lot of things is fascinating what's happened in North America and the, the connections with all of the different groups, whether it's the monarchies, it's the... Jesuits, it's the Protestants, it's the Roman Catholics, how they this ultimately we're talking about the Roman Empire. And we look at um uh, the Roth the uh Rockefellers, they're simply part of the Roman Empire. It's part of the B system. And before we close, we probably should close going on for a while. I want to read Romans one again, I read it a lot in my show because every time I do some of this historical studies and just look at a little bit about the power structure of the United States and the world, it leads me back to Romans chapter 1. If you don't mind, I'm going to read that. Um, yes, and we will go midway into it. We'll start with uh, verse 22 so we don't go through the whole thing, but uh, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools to change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Now we're talking about what, just thinking about the Rothschilds and the influence on Protestantism in the past century. Thank you very much. Um, and to birds and four-footed uh, beasts and creeping things, wherefore God also gave them up unto uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts and dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And I can tell you folks from my little research too about the Rockefellers, man, do they love sodomy and perversion and uh, they, along with many others that go along their path, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this cause God gave them up unto the vile affections for even their women to change the natural use that, into that which is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the natural use of women burned in their lust one towards another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving themselves that recompense of the air which was met. It's interesting. I'm thinking right now of the movie, I believe it's the, um, with the Johnny Depp, self-proclaimed Luciferian and Satanist himself. I believe it's called The Dead. That's that old Western movie. Tell me if I'm wrong with that. I think it's The Dead, is it what it is? Where he is like this futuristic Rockefeller and that goes out west to become an accountant and ends up um, hanging out with the Native Americans. Anyways, the scene where they have um, uh, I think it was Iggy Pop and uh, the, the other two actors that are well known, you know, pretending to read the Bible and are sodomites and, and want to have sex with uh, uh, Johnny Depp whatever the character's name was at the time. Anyway, it's, it, how everything is so twisted, and how, in particular, when we look at the consequences of living under this Romanist system, the Roman Empire, 
what it does to people. It turns them into butcherers, liars, perverted. And we go on and we'll read the rest of the characteristics of those who reject the word of God and go their own way. And it doesn't take very much with this idolatry and becoming a Romanist or being part of the modern church or just being an atheist or a humanist or whatever. If you reject the God himself, this is what happens. Even, as we go on with verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and debate and deceit and malignity and whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things. Imagine that. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which committed such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but to have the pleasure in them that do them. Do them. And the more and more I study history, my history, my culture, the world around me, is it not the description that we're talking about? Is this not the satanic Romanistic empire that we live under, is it not the fact that the reason why men like the Rockefeller rise to the top is because of their own wickedness and because we live in a very wicked system, that that's what rewards, that's, the, that's how the system rewards others, uh, those involved in the system. The more evil you are, the more you will gain in this world. And as it says in the Bible, what profit man to gain a whole world but lose his own soul? And that's what we're really dealing with. And um, I hate to sound like a religious fanatic because, you know, it's not really my nature, really, but it's just come obvious. Yes. It comes obvious that this is what we're dealing with. You know what I mean? <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, in the, in the in the chat room here, guest two is putting up some really excellent looking source material. Huh. Yeah. Yes, too. Whatever that is, they're putting up some good stuff. Yeah. That's probably Joseph McCabe. I've I came across that that name recently. Joseph McCabe. It does ring a bell. Russia with love. Grand Duke Alexander warns American about the Rockefeller Empire. <laughs> well, that's be very interesting. To, oh my gosh. It's you know really honestly you know what. The more I think about this particular subject, there is so much information out there, and I had no idea, about the Rockefellers, their consequences on the global stage, as long as the locals are in our country, that you literally could have your own show, a daily show for the next five years, just talking about the Rockefellers. <laughs> Do you realize that? Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's how influential they have been in our lives and uh, in the world itself, and uh, talk about some wicked men. My goodness. And um, 
I, I mean, I just don't know. So, any any closing comments before we end? Because we have gone. Well, you know, I want people to listen. Yeah, I'll, I'll close. But close with this. Um, I still listen to those those other guys once in a while. Um, Jurgen is boys uh, and Walt. Uh huh. And I think I've told you. Um, Walt is Walt's great for about two or three weeks, and of course he repeats himself over and over. However, there's one thing, there's one thing that that Walt repeats that ought to be repeated. Oh, he's he's right to repeat one thing over and over, and that is, you talk about how what aided the Rockefellers the most in capturing the incorporated churches, the evangelical incorporated churches, aside from the contract they signed. The other thing is. Walt says this every show, it's the, the horror, the danger of futurism, Jesuitical futurism. He is right. That is the main, it's, it was a Jesuitical debate with a hook in it, and the evangelicals took it, and they're hooked, and they've lost their history. And, and that is, they're no longer able to identify who every one of their antecedents said was the, the Antichrist, the papal system. And they, they've lost that, and, boy, they're, they're, they're walking right back to the beast. And it's, it's, it's sad and amazing to see. But it's, yeah, it's futurism, the whole pre-trib, pre-trib, post-trib, anything to do with futurism, it's all bogus. And <laughs> Walt, you're, Walt should keep repeating that one. That's, man... Yeah, well, this dispensational futurism is clearly that of uh, <clears throat> of the Jesuits and of Rome, and it's uh, the whole. Of course, the agenda was to keep uh, Protestants' eyes off the enemy, um, and its you behavior. Can, you can even behavior. identify. What? What you say? You can even ident- you can identify the the two Jesuit priests who wrote that bogus doctrine. It was. Uh, Ribera, and then the guy who fine-tuned it later on, Lacunza, uh, Jose Ribera, and uh, Francisco, no, not Francisco, um, Emmanuel Lacunza. And, of course, then the whole preterism thing was also written by Jesuits. The one who did that was uh, Louis de Alcazar. But all of that, it's all Jesuitical garbage. Uh, it's, a, it's a ploy. It's bogus eschatology to trick the Protestants into no longer being Protestants, and holy smokes, has it ever worked? Oh yeah, and you know you, you go to Darby, and then you got Schofield and the Schofield Reference Bible, and um, the tragedy and all that. So I mean, and this is all the same time period as the rise of the Rockefellers too, um, with this whole pushing of the uh, dispensation of futurism on. Uh, American Protestantism, and then you know, spread it throughout the rest of the world to a point now where, yeah, most people don't recognize who's really running the show, who the enemy really is, at least at the top. In fact, I would argue at this point they are part of the enemy. In fact, it's overwhelming that the the evangelical church is part uh, is in the enemy's camp, if you will. So now we have this giant satanic empire, this, this system hovering over us, and we are in the same situation as the time of Daniel, where there's not very many people left who are true 
followers and believers in Jesus Christ. They say they are, but they're not really. They're into the Catholic mysticism, and they're adding to their own selves and their own wishes and their own desires. They don't want to serve God, and they don't want to stand up for the stand up against the enemy. They want to love it. They think that they can love their, this satanic system, and somehow it will change through love and compassion and, and all those sort of things, which are great. You know, it's good to be loving and caring and all that. But obviously, as time goes on, which for me, and I do my research, say the most loving thing you can do is exactly exposing the satanic system that you live under. Expose it. Challenge it. Get others who are in it out of it. That's about the most loving thing you can do. And warning them that it's not going to be a bed of roses and you're not going to, it's not going to be an easy road and a ride to follow Christ. You're going to really go through hell because you live in a hell. Uh, uh, if you will, a, a, an image, a, a mere image of what the future for those who will not accept the truth, the teachings of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know it sounds like a religious nut, but the only way I can prove this to you is by telling you the truth and asking anyone who may listen to this who does not believe to take the chance to get on your knees and fall on your face and pray and ask the true and living God the truth. And it's not going to be a very pleasant ride. If you really want to know the truth and you really are sincere, he's going to reveal it to you. And always remember that you can't come to the Father without the Son or the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the way it is. There is no options. If you do not use what is the Word of God tells us to do as far as prayer and in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are praying to something other than the true and living God. And that is part of this whole spiritual deception that I believe that these, like the Rockefellers and all them men, this Luciferian, because uh, they're really into uh, mysticism, they're really into spiritualism, they're really into channeling and all that kind of stuff, and they really are into the spirits, and they follow those spirits, and they feel that they are rewarded for doing so, and obviously they are. Uh, and uh, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, you know, we can go on and on about Luciferianism, but Surely, it, it, it seems to be the in a, the grand, a, a very powerful and grand influence on these folks like the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, and etc. Uh, Gnosticism and Luciferianism, and that they believe in a God, and they obviously believe in something, and the God of this world rewards them. And uh, I just. Could you imagine spending a day with a Rockefeller? What the heck? I mean, can you imagine? I know one thing. If I spent a day with a Rockefeller, I'd be pissing them off big time, I'm sure. Because <laughs> I'd be challenging well, them on everything. <laughs> oh, well, here's one, here's one you could challenge them on. Uh, apparent, they, they may still do this. I don't know. But I know that J.D. Rockefeller... After he had his henchmen crush all the homeopathic uh, physician schools, he then, of course, made sure that hired himself his own personal physician, 
was a homeopath. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and he had some pre- peculiar, uh, he had some peculiar uh, beliefs uh, about uh, taking care of himself that were kind of strange, or at least uh, one of them was. Uh, he, according to Josephson, J.D. Rockefeller had his own personal uh, adult wet nurse for himself <laughs> at all times uh, at the ready and waiting. Uh, he somehow believed that human breast milk uh, all through his life would give him longevity and uh, probably can't argue with the results. I don't know. Uh, these Rockefellers, I, I know they're getting, they're on a different health plan than you and you and me, uh, the Kissingers and the Rockefellers. Hmm. Not, it's not too surprising and it's uh, not very, you know, I mean, as we got through reading in Romans 1, you know, what happens to a man who rejects God? You end up doing pretty bizarre things, like having a lifelong... Well, yeah, and then you a ton of money, too. I might say, well, you know, if you're yeah, a, a heterosexual guy, you might say, well, you know what, hey, I like one's breast, that'd be great. But uh, sucking on them for your substance, your, uh, just, you know, <laughs> breast milk, um, that's yeah, they're kind of, that's perversion. It wasn't a sexual thing for Rockefeller. Well, no, yeah. I, really, I think yeah. it's a perversion. It really is a perversion. It's a perversion of the use of a woman. Oh, it is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I guess that's what happens. These men, you know, with power, you know, we see it in the Bible, we see it throughout history. Men that were given this, this power, um, they end up doing some really bizarre things. So, Because they're allowed to do it. And they're allowed to to act upon their darkest wishes and desires because there's nothing to keep them from, nothing restraining them from doing it. So I'm sure that, I mean, have you done any research on the Rockefellers about their connections with uh, Satanism? I mean, if if he's willing to do that, Mm -hmm. it's like on a woman's breast, do they do any, uh, I I have a hard time believing that they're not involved in some way with Satanism. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I've not come across it. Yeah, no. The thing that stands out about Josephson, like I said, is he's the one that if you trace his writings from beginning to end, you see him connecting the dots, and ultimately he connects them to the, the Jesuits. I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, eventually it gets to that point, huh? I think it's probably one of those things that you yeah. don't want. Like so many of us, we don't want to believe it, that many of us have actually maybe even been to Jesuit schools themselves specifically, even though we've all received a Jesuit education, whether public or private, um, it's, you know, you, I'm sure it was a hard pill to swallow. And it was one of those things, like so many of us do, we want to skirt around the issue. We probably heard about it earlier on, but just with the hell out to go right overhead because it's hard to believe. Well, the, the Jesuits could possibly be the ones at the top of the heap, and it's turning out to be that way. So then, you know, once you start to learn about the fact that the spiritual always, always, always overrides the temple, you know that these men have some kind of spiritual uh, advisors connection to you know these whatever Satanists, Luciferians, Jesuits. I high priests of the dark magic, whatever, that allows them to stay up on top, you know what I mean? Something allows them, because it's not just your wicked genius that allows you to stay on top, you know what I mean? 
Because there's a lot of really brilliant, wicked men out there that certainly could uh, cause the Rockefellers a run for their money, but why are they still sticking around? It's obviously that they have connections and they are chosen to be on top, so. And they're living longer on average than any of us regular folks. Yeah. They they're, they're, they got access to something medically that uh, we don't have. The same could be said about certain rock stars, too, who are probably a secret society connected. Oh, I think there's no probability in it at all. I don't think you could even be a famous rock star without being compromised. There's just no way of doing it. Yeah. You and I know enough about the old, you know... Uh, Independent music and all that. There's 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 a lot of there's a lot of great musicians out there that you'll never hear of. Why do you right. always hear all the crap ones? So that's one of the things that you know. Uh, what I'm hoping. I don't know if it's going to be appropriate or not. You know, Andrew, who's been interacting with us here on the chat room with the the shares, he got me the book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, and I. Um, I don't know if it would be appropriate or not to read it on my show. What do you think? Do you think it would be something that would be a problem? I have no... I can't imagine it, it, it would be in any way jeopardize sales uh, of his book. Um, first of all, no one's going to probably want to, you know, knowing how I read to begin with, I think they'll probably motivate them to actually get the book. <laughs> but I don't know. Well, I well, read maybe read portions of it. Maybe not yeah. the whole thing. Maybe I don't know. We'll see, I you know I haven't heard anything from him in a while, so I know he's. Was, of course, with you, you never finished books anyway. <laughs> so no I problem. know it's been a struggle. I really do want to get this um, popery as it was and as it is. That'd be the very first book of my show that I've ever finished. But there's so much to talk about. You know what I mean? And it's just you get pulled in so many different directions, and it's. I find it very impressive at times, those who are so narrow-focused that they just read the same stuff over and over again. But I don't know how you actually have a clear picture of the world if you stay so narrowly focused. You've got to broaden your horizon see the big picture, you know what I mean? You've got to look at many different aspects of it to really understand it more fully. But that's my opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. This will be the first one I ever finished, so. I mean, between raising the kid, dealing with everything else, man, you know how this is. And then have this show, on the, and you know what it is. I mean, you're, it's so easy to be to go from this direction, that direction, the other direction, you know what I mean? Because, oh, my gosh, there's something new. <laughs> something else I just discovered. Hey, folks, look at this, you know what I mean? Um, Those are the rabbit holes. Yeah. They sure are. So, Anyways, I'll see. But yeah, yeah, with... Uh, it's funny, uh, Dave McGowan, my son, he'll like, he just, all of a sudden this past week, and I, I, I think I only mentioned his name maybe two or three times in front of him, but he, uh, he's like, he starts talking about Dave McGowan. I go, what? What, <laughs> what are you talking about Dave McGowan? I guess he likes the name. You think it, you know what I mean? Dave McGowan, he's even got a, like a, <laughs> he's got a little friend that, you know, one of his dolls named Dave McGowan. So, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I just wonder how he's doing. I haven't heard anything from him. I know he was pretty much saying he was on his deathbed a couple of weeks ago. I even went on the show and said something about it because he gave me the impression that you only have about a week or two to live, and he went to Hawaii, but I haven't heard anything from him since. So. I don't know. I hope he's all right. I hope he pulls through. I mean, it's 
you can only all you can do is take what he says seriously. You know what I mean? So I hope that he that yeah. in the end that he pulls through and he just doesn't pass away. So anyways. So those who are still there, you know, just remind you uh at twelve thirty tomorrow, um we're gonna be doing the first episode of the series uh Genocide in the name of God with Viz, you know, Keith Hansen. So hopefully it will be a series. We decide, you know, for some reason our friend Gordon Keith said he wanted to do a little series or do a couple shows with me before he really calls it quits. I think part of the problem is it's really hard once you start this to let go of it, isn't it? It's, it's once it's in your blood to have these kind of conversations. You want to do more of it, you don't you? Yeah. Unfortunately, life pulls pulls you away. Pull, pulls you away. And, you know, there's so many things that can happen to keep you from doing it. Viz has retired. He's retired more than Billy Martin. Yeah. The <laughs> former manager of the Yankees. Hey, you know what? And I don't blame him. There's times, you know, there's days I wake up and I go, "Why am I doing this?" Why am I doing this? And I'm sure you've had that same thought process. Why the heck am I doing this? And there's like, there's just, I guess it's kind of like gold fever, you know what I mean? Once you got the fever to do these kind of conversations or radio or anything like that, you want to do more of it because it's, well, quite frankly, it's the only kind of platform out there in your life to have these kind of conversations. You know, exactly, yeah. You can't have truly meaningful conversations with anybody that in your actual circle of physical friends that they don't know and they don't want to know. Yeah, it will agitate them to the point that they want to do something. You know, you can see it in their face. They get so upset and irritated and they think you're such a negative person for talking about what's really going on. And um, I don't know. I mean, when I do it, you know, it's like it's a weird thing because – I don't feel upset talking about, you know, I get upset when I think about the Rockefellers and what they've done, but in a weird way, I have the joy and satisfaction of actually having the conversations and just learning a little bit more about it and understanding the world the way it really is. And unfortunately, it's not a pretty picture at all. It's a very ugly picture, but at least we understand what we're living in, you know what I mean? And it's not just... And I think for some, in a weird way, it's very therapeutic and cathartic for a man to actually talk about the truth, what's really going on in life. You know, we spend most of our life trying to fix ourselves, raise ourselves up, you know, uh, you know, this whole notion that there's something wrong with us, you know, careers and et cetera, uh, that we've lost the very important and value aspect of uh Manhood, and that's what we're doing right now, which is having... Oh, that, that's gone. Yeah. What's that? That's it's all gone in our yeah. culture. It is, and it's been deliberate. You know, it's a very important aspect. You know, there's... I guess there's still some semblance of it, maybe some of the, uh, coffee, the coffee houses, not really coffee houses, but the, the tobacco shops and all that where they, they get... Or, yeah, there were times when, you know, you know what I'm saying. There was a time, and there's still some few places left where you could have these kind of conversations. The man sitting around, they talk about. Unfortunately, 
most of the time, though, it's revolved around what the television has said instead of having these kind of conversations. But there was much, much I hope there was a time when men were more able to do these sort of things. So maybe we can bring this back in a little bit, having these kind of conversations. So, anyways, I should end the recording here because we're really going on longer than I imagine you and I expected. But I do appreciate it. Stay on. And uh, for those who are still there, thank you. And I'm just going to end the recording now. And let me get back here. Okay. Oh, I can hear my son coughing in the background. Everyone's sick, so. That might have been me. I don't know why I'm coughing. Oh, no. My, I can hear my. Yeah, my baby. He's coughing. I've been sick all weekend. I didn't know really that. Yeah, me too. Yours was sick all weekend? Well, he's been sick since Thursday. Are you? But I, I got sick. I caught his cold. Oh, you? So I didn't do anything. Got it. Well, I think part of the problem is whatever this old house is, I mean, it's it's old. And there's like something going on with the furnace. And um, yeah, you could have uh, mold. Oh, I know we have mold. Mold. I, some, I get on my, I don't know. My, the landlord, he's a nice guy, but he's a bit of a slumlord. It's, <laughs> I don't know if he's going to yeah, do anything yeah. about it. And I'm so broke, I can't do anything about it anyway. So. Although I, I did a, I sent an application into um, Ace Hardware. Ace is the place of the helpful hardware man. So um, doesn't pay very much, you know. Chump, chump change, but it's just down the road, and you know, as at least it's not one of those, G, those giant, you know, uh, box stores. You know what I mean? The ones like. Uh, Whatever it may be, you know, Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, you know, they, they, you know at least East Hardware is still kind of a, it's kind of a local store and, uh, and uh, you know what I mean? So at least you're kind of, kind of supporting a local business and um, it's small, so I don't have to go all the creation back to find something, you know what I mean? So I hope they hire me. I hope they do. I, I don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So, uh, be a hardware man for a while. <laughs> well, I hope you get it then. That'd be nice. Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of my background as a blue collar worker, doing all sorts of things, whether it's a railroad or landscaping or construction or whatever. So I have a little basic understanding of it all. At least doing it so. I guess it's the natural next step for me is just work in a little hardware store where I don't have to go very far and just fetch parts, you know what I mean? And items yeah. and things, you know. <laughs> and uh, I just told him, I said, listen, I was up front about it. They know about it because I walk in with my cane. It's just down the road. Literally, literally it's, a, it's probably a five-minute walk or a one-minute uh, one drive um, to... Um, I don't know, we'll see. I said, listen, you know, I have MS, so. But you said you guys hire people with handicaps, so I got one, so. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. You still there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that, man. Yeah. Well, Hope I you get it. Probably should let you go. You got to. 
get some rest and, and uh, go to work and all that. So, but thanks, thanks for sharing that with me. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know uh, if it went the direction you wanted to. Unfortunately, I didn't know the book that well, and so I kind of looked. Oh, that's okay. I looked for a couple pieces <clears throat> of information that that stood out. And uh, well, Rockefeller, man, what that that family, that clan, and that little bit of information you said that he's related to the Dulles brothers, huh? Yeah, um, that explains a lot. It does explain a lot. It really does. Why uh, this these this particular uh, gangsters, uh, European gangsters, um, <clears throat> at least that are still on top. It's because of the connections with Rome. That's the only thing that makes any sense because, you know, you know as I, as I do, how these gangs work, you, uh, you know, so. I just heard something that doesn't make sense. Yeah, gangs, you know what I mean? There's a lot of fight and turf war and everything like that. Why are these guys still on top, you know? Somebody's leaving them mm-hmm. on top. I think it's a very convenient too. Well, as far as in the front group, and the blame put all the blame on the Rockefellers. So just like the Jews and everything else, right? Or Obama, it's just the, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so I look right. forward to your show with uh, with Viz tomorrow. That'll be nice. That should be. I forget. You know, I I gotta just find some time because uh, I want to tie in a little bit about the KJV. And British Israelism and its connections with, uh, you know, all the hostilities towards uh, the whites and um, the Native Americans. And, uh, you know, what we're going to do, uh, you know, like you say, so we're gonna, I do something other than the Jesuits. So I spend a lot of time with the Jesuits. Well, there's a lot of other groups to blame, so. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, if, you know, especially if we look at uh, British Israelism, and its influence on settling the Americas. I mean, you look like the, the Mormons and how the, it's, it's a twisting and a perversion of British Israelism. In fact, they pretty much just their doctrine it's pretty much comes straight from it. Or, you know, stuff like uh, the doctrine of discovery. I don't know if you know much about that. I would like to talk a little about that and how they use a papal bull. Have you listen to that show. <clears throat> the papal bull of uh, to justify, you know, uh, what we did here. So, and we're not just talking Catholics now; we're also talking about the Protestants, which is obvious. It's clear that back then and now, uh, they didn't really they didn't separate that far from the papacy. And when it was at their convenience, they still kept some of their. Uh, their doctrines and uh, the dogma. Yeah, that's clear. And uh, so they justified what they were doing. Actually, you know, <laughs> as far as the removal and the genocide of the indigenous populations, whether in North America or other places, with this whole doctrine of discovery. So once you plant your <laughs> put your flag in the ground and <laughs> you claim it, then it's yours, right? Fascinating the whole uh, concept. So, 
But actually, the Doctrine of Discovery is something a little bit, it's, it's an extension of a papal bull from 1492, because the Doctrine of Discovery is actually a, an American concept that came first from here, right? The, the Marshall, and uh, the Marshall versus somebody else's uh, legal, um, whatever they call that, what do they call that? Uh, law, or whatever, they pass some kind of new law, so. Anyways, the doctrine of discovery is just is an expansion and a justification of uh, the papal bull that they used to take over, colonize the world. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, Mar- the Mar- one of the looks at the colonization, the European colonization of the world. I mean, Europe didn't have a lot of people, and yeah, Europe had some technology that was a little more advanced than others, but if you look, look back 500, 400 years ago, their technology, how, how advanced was it? What was the advancement? Was it their... It goes back to the Bible and how the serpent gives it, gave it its power. That Satan, they worship Satan at the top, and it's very spiritual and how they would take over all these other people. And yeah, they were savages and they're godless and they didn't know the true and living God and they had the defense of God. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how does such a small number of people take over the world? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, especially their population had been wiped out from the Black Death a couple of times, so it was a low population. That's yeah. true. Yeah, and just, you know... You think about it. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's it's smaller than you can imagine. We're talking a couple of ships of people, men. You can't. And we're not talking about thousands and thousands of invaders coming into a country like South Africa, or whatever, uh, in the get go, and how they just systematically took over the majority of the globe. I mean, it's 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 one of the marvels of the. Of humanity, I think, of the history of humanity, how this small group of people were able to take over the world. The sons of Jesus. <laughs> well, whatever the CVP and whatever the, I mean, but that still doesn't explain it. I mean, does it explain it really? No, no. <laughs> I mean, at some point, there's, there should have been some kind of, uh, I mean, like China, if they, they resisted all those years, and finally until we figured out a way to economically enslave them. But, you know, the Incas, when they showed up, Incas, the, they had the largest city in the world. They had the largest empire in the world. They couldn't resist. Conquistadors? I mean, there wasn't that many of them. Well, part of that, you got the disease, the white brought diseases that the Incas didn't ever see before. And the other part is the whites were a um, an Iron Age culture, and the Incas were a Stone Age culture. I know. There's all that kind of stuff that we learn about in history, but really, think about it. Really? If if you ever want to know what would happen if, say, a European country, a European power, one of the leading European powers at the colonization period, you know, say Columbus era, if you ever want to know what would happen if one of their 
if if their armies met on the battlefield with ancient Greece, I think you saw that. You saw it when they came across the Aztecs and the Incas. Yeah, I mean... The Stone Age. Although that was a Bronze Age, I tell you. Ancient Greece was even more advanced. Yeah, but even that, I mean, we're talking about numbers. We're talking about... Okay, so they had swords and they had, you know, bows and all that kind of stuff. There's only so many of them compared to millions of Indians. Uh, yeah, I think even more so, it was the disease, the diseases. Well, that's part of the. That's definitely, definitely, they they figured out how to use germ warfare, and that was part of it. But then there's something, something greater going on. I guess this is what I'm trying to get at: is something spiritual. It's almost like uh, because these people were, you know, let's, if we're really honest about it, like the Incas, well, all of them were pretty savage and much worshipped the false gods and were savage and were, uh, Satanists themselves. It's almost like well, because Satan chose Europe, the European continent, the people there, the monarchies and papacy, they ch- they chose them to take over. He's chose them to take over the world kind of thing. This whole thing that goes back to Eric Phelps about white supremacy and what, what does that really mean? It's not really because they're white. It's because Satan chose them to take over the world. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. You know, he, uh, which means that somehow it, as wicked as the Incas were and all these other cultures and they're willing to human and child sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, the heart sacrifice, rituals. And clearly, <clears throat> the Europeans, unfortunately, our ancestors were much more wicked. I can't think of anything else. So they're, they're a more evil group of people. That They were just yeah. better at killing and worshipping and getting, uh, obviously, just murder or mayhem, killing and disease warfare and everything else. That's our ancestors. And now I can understand why so many of the people of the brown skin would call them, you know, the white devils. Because in reality, that's what our ancestors were, white devils. They even worshipped the devil pretty much <laughs> under the guise of Christianity. So, I don't know. I find it fascinating find it very disturbing and um, just trying to make sense of history is it, it's quite a journey isn't it because it's yeah because what the public school teaches you and what television and what university a teacher is a very much a watered down version of what history really was about, is about so even even trying to figure out with what we know is is interest is weird Tricky as some of the emails going around the past week. I think you were privy to those about um, the Ford assassination attempts and Nelson Rockefeller as VP as to what that was, and then Ronnie's assassination attempt. What those were really about? That, that, um, did you get those? I yeah, I saw them briefly. I, did, I was so busy doing my own thing. It's, it's hard to, to keep track of so much yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I did, and you know. I wasn't. I guess I wasn't on the same wavelength as everybody else. I was focusing on other issues, so I figured I just never really had much to. Oh, contribute. Yeah, sure. Didn't have much to contribute <laughs> to the conversation, but I watched it. 
Uh, okay, that was I was wondering when Bush's uh, the, uh, the assassin uh, Hinckley. He was a friend of the Bush family. His dad was. So obviously the the Bush clan was in on the hit of Reagan. Um, but you wonder. Okay, I know that that Rome was already. The Pope had got here in '79 and kissed the ground and reclaimed it. But then it was three and a half years after the, the hit attempt on Reagan when Reagan became the first president. When he was reelected, he, he took the oath of office facing the obelisk, and that was assigned to the Vatican. And then he had official diplomatic channels opened with the Vatican again. And I just I was wondering in that email, was, did he do that for protection for himself? Since uh, uh, Bush, the Bush clan, had already tried to hit him once. I don't know. Say that again? I don't understand that at all. He's trying to protect right. Well, you, you, the hit uh, came about like oh, shortly after he was elected president. In 1980, a couple of months after he was became president, is when uh, Reagan was shot. Okay. And you're aware that Hinckley, the shooter... If he even if he was the only shooter, there may have been more. Um, but Hinckley was his father was a big time supporter of Bush, and his father was also close our personal friends with uh, Neil Bush, Bush's son. What they neighbors? Were you were aware of that? Yeah, were they some like some kind they of might have been, neighbors or business partners or something like that? Um, yeah, I do know about that. And that, well, I thought that Hinckley was like buddies of uh, the Jeb Bush or no, the other Bush. That no one ever talks about. Uh, Neil, Neil, but yeah, yeah, were they buddies? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't Hinkley. It was a gal. So okay, so that happened in, in 1980. 1984, Reagan gets reelected, and now Reagan takes the his. Does he do the swearing in again? He did. I guess you do the swearing in again, don't you? Because it was in '84 when he, I, I'm pretty sure it was in '84. Well, hold on a second. Maybe was it in 1980 when he? I think it was '84 when he, he faced the obelisk. I think. Um, no, the, the, I don't he know. Faced, he faced the, do, the obelisk the first swearing in. He did. Okay. Well, what he did in '84. In 84 was when he reestablished diplomatic channels, official diplomatic channels. And I'm thinking that he was that part of, like, further protection for himself against the Bush clan. I don't know. Maybe he he wasn't. Maybe he didn't need that. Huh. I don't know either. You know, it's uh, it's interesting just trying to explain to people that... uh, that boy, that that Reagan was never really in charge the whole time. That he was never really. He only uh, he was the uh, proxy or not proxy. What do you say? He was he was presented out there as the guy yeah. who was in charge, but he never was really out here in charge. It was always uh, the the Romanist neo Nazi. Uh, Bush that was the one in charge. So, yeah. Uh, but most people have a hard time grasping that because they say, well, 
he was it was uh, because Bush because because they, they quote unquote voted for Reagan. <laughs> so the new thing is if you know what I said about uh there you go, buddy. Barney Sanders. Yes, yeah. he's like the new version of uh, new version of uh, what's his face, uh, Ron Paul. He's the new hero, the new savior in the political system, and everyone's pushing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Barney Sanders, huh? Yeah. The young socialist member. So, yeah, he'll, he'll be saving us. That's for sure. But. Uh, Anyways, I probably should let you go here, my friend. I got my son; he's got medicine all over the bed now, so I got to figure out stuff. Here. All right. So, anyways, let's talk soon, man. Let's just do something soon, maybe next month or or uh, sooner than that. Sooner the show. Does that sound good? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm getting through books a lot slower these days. I'm a lot slower, but uh, well, you probably know. yeah, we'll stay in touch. Well, you're now at my pace, so <laughs> I'm sure we can figure out something. No, no. Okay, I'll check out your show tomorrow with Keith. Okay, bro. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, Michael. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.